Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Breathing is an unconscious function, so it's easy to take it for granted. We just breathe in and out. But if you have asthma, you know what it's like to have trouble breathing. Today, where we live, a look at asthma trends in the state. The Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT, recently reported on the numbers and prevention efforts. One of its reporters will join us. Coming up, we'll hear from a researcher at Connecticut Children's Medical Center about a program meant to keep kids with asthma out of the hospital. A pediatrician will join us, too, to talk about the disease and treatment options. And later, we'll learn why some health officials believe there are more Connecticut children with lead poisoning than previously thought. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us now by phone is Jody Mosier-Gill, Assistant Professor of Journalism at Southern Connecticut State University and freelance reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. Jody, welcome to where we live. Thanks for having me. You recently reviewed... Uh, state data about uh, asthma around the state. I know you looked at portions, um, not just in recent years, but also um, a little bit back to kind of see where we are in terms of asthma in our state. What did you find? So we looked at uh, the state released its most recent uh, five-year block of data on the use of hospitals to uh, for people with asthma. And that's a proxy that health officials use uh, to, to determine how well people are managing their asthma symptoms. So we're seeing across the country and in Connecticut more and more people have asthma, and so the question is how are they managing those symptoms? Um, the idea is if you need to go to the hospital for it when you could be managing it at home, that shows that maybe you're not managing it so well. So the numbers we looked at um, break down hospitalization rates and emergency room visit rates for each town in Connecticut. So it was a lot of information, you know, it's 169 towns um, and then two sets of numbers that we were looking at. And we compared it to the previous five-year data block. Um, really what we wanted to see is, I mean, first you're always looking for where are the problems, where, uh, what cities and towns have the highest rates. But we wanted to look more at where were there some improvements, right? So where are we seeing some success and then try to find out why are we seeing that success. So just to give you sort of a range, um, we saw a lot of towns, individual towns, that their rates dropped from the first five-year block to the most recent one. So 58% of the towns saw um, a drop of some kind in their ER visits, and then 63% of towns saw a drop in their hospitalization rates. Is there, um, is, I'm sorry, Judy, is there a portion of the state where um, these improvements were surprising? I don't know if it's surprising anywhere. It's more, you know, trying to find out why in certain areas. But we did see one, one block uh, sort of at the top. So they had really high drops in the rates in the Naugatuck Valley, the lower Naugatuck Valley. Um, they had, let's see, double-digit drops in uh, Derby, Ansonia, Seymour, and Beacon Falls, which are adjacent towns. Um, 
when I talk to some officials at the hospital that treats that region, which is Griffin Hospital, um, they hadn't seen all these numbers yet, but they were they pointed to some programs um, in the area like putting on airs, which is a home visit program. Uh, they pointed to just more education that they're pushing. Um, but then they also said, you know, we're really still seeing this as a big problem. So even though there's improvement, they're hoping to continue pushing and trying to get more and more people uh, better educated about using their asthma uh, action plans. In your reporting um, and talking to health providers, is asthma something that affects uh, more children than adults? Yeah, you see higher rates in children. Um, there's disparities among uh, demographics, so you see more minorities having asthma. Um, and then in cities, that's a big uh, disparity. So you see a lot more people using, especially with the numbers we looked at, using the hospital to treat asthma um, and having asthma in cities. So we weren't surprised to see the top-ranking um, cities in each category were big cities. So for hospitalizations, and that's people who've been admitted to the hospital after going to the emergency room, uh, New Haven topped the list, right? And we had a rate of 55 people per 10,000 uh, were admitted to the hospital for asthma symptoms during this uh, block. And to put that in comparison, the lowest town, uh, the lowest rate was Stonington, and they only had one person per 10,000 admitted. So you see a really big gap there. Um, when it came to emergency room visits, the rate's much higher. More people go to the emergency room, and Hartford topped that list. So they had 20, 247 people uh, per 10,000 using the emergency room for asthma. And then again, to compare that to the lowest town, Wilton had only five per 10,000. So it's a big gap between the, the towns with the highest rate and the towns with the lowest rates. You mentioned that the state tracks this data to see how well um, people are managing the disease and where they should then uh, put uh, their efforts into helping people with treatment and options. And can you talk a little bit more about these programs that the state has? Sure. So um, the programs we looked at in particular were easy breathing, and that's a program where doctor's offices are using um, pretty much simplified guides to diagnose and then track and help manage the asthma symptoms in their patients. Um, and the other program we looked at, which is a state-sponsored program that regional health districts um, use, is called Putting on Airs. And that is a program that actually sends nurses and health officials into people's homes. So they're finding asthma symptoms, uh, they're finding patients with asthma through their school nurse, through ER visits, through um, other means of referral, and then they send officials into the homes to just meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, mm. right? The idea is if you're in the emergency room and you're in the middle of an asthma attack, you're not really in the right state of mind to go over how to properly use your inhaler. Um, in your home, you're more comfortable, you're there with someone on your own terms, you're not in the middle of an attack, so they can really help you take in and understand how to use your inhaler properly. And then they can also do sort of an assessment. Is there mold? Is there some other, is someone smoking in the house? And they can start really educating people a little bit better on how can we prevent another asthma attack. So that's a program. It, you know, it, it's... Um, it costs some money to send people one-on-one -on -one into homes, so there's, there were only 940 people enrolled in the program in the last uh, five-year block that we looked at. 
but it's something that they, they've studied and they've seen has really shown improvements. And uh, the, for, I'm sorry, uh, Jody. we're going to have someone uh, later on in the show talking a little bit more about um, easy breathing, and uh, we'll also ask about putting on airs, again, two prevention uh, programs to help people with asthma. But I'm curious, you know, in your reporting, did you see that because of the programs that are out there that this is actually helping to decrease these ER and hospitalizations? So the research that's been done on the individual programs has shown that, yes, it has. They've seen fewer people need to use the hospital. Um, People are missing fewer days of school, fewer days of work when they've been enrolled in this program. Um, So, yeah, they've, they've seen that these types of intensive education programs really do help people manage their uh, asthma better. The other thing that there's a big push for is just getting people signed up with an action plan. And all that is is you talk with your doctor about what medicines you're on, what um, interventions you'll do during certain symptoms. So if you're having uh, tightening of the chest, what should you do? Um, Instead of panicking and maybe going to the hospital, you have control over how you're managing that. And then you know based on your symptoms when it's time to really go to the hospital. Um, Only 33% of Connecticut residents actually had an asthma action plan a couple years ago. And so the state is trying to get more and more people to sign up for those because it it puts the education and it puts the action in the hands of the person with the illness. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking with Jody Mosher-Gill, a freelance reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT. She recently reported on the latest trends uh, for people affected by asthma, both adults and children, at CHIT.org. And Jody, uh, before we let you go, um, anything that was surprising to you in terms of, you know, all this data crunching that you did and how the state and medical providers are reaching out to people with asthma? Yes, yeah, so I, you know, we looked at, we, as I said, the cities have the highest rates. It's something that that's not surprising. But when I looked at how they've changed over the last five-year block, it was good to see that some cities are actually seeing a decrease. Even though they're still the, the highest rates, they're going in the right direction. And New Haven was one that stood out. So they had the highest rate, as I mentioned, of hospitalizations. Um, but in the last group of data, that rate went down by eight points. It wasn't the biggest improvement in the state, but it was in the right direction. Um, there were other cities that had increases in their rates. Hartford, for example, went up um, in ER visits and hospitalizations. So it was, it was interesting to see that there are some pockets um, where there is improvement, even though it's still not an ideal number. Um, and, you know, the reason why is it's, it's sort of in, you can interpret different things, but New Haven has smoking cessation programs, Um, There's pushes to get easy breathing to doctors there, um, as there is in Hartford, too. So we're seeing these efforts uh, pushed in different areas, and we're starting to see some changes happening. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Do you have asthma? Does someone in your family? Have you been able to take advantage of these programs that the state has, whether it's easy breathing or putting on airs? Again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to thank Jody Mosier-Gill, Assistant Professor of Journalism at Southern Connecticut State University and freelance reporter for CHIT. Thank you for your time, Jody. Thank you so much. Coming up, we'll be joined by a researcher and a pediatrician to find out more about how the state's using this info to target treatment of asthma statewide. This is where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Fall starts later this week, and with cooler temperatures come sniffling, sneezing, coughing. You get the picture. If you have your child experienced persistent coughing, is it just a cold? Or could it be a symptom of asthma? Today, we're talking about the disease in the context of recent Connecticut data on the number of ER visits and hospitalizations due to asthma. Joining us now by phone is Dr. Richard Uleski, Uleski rather, pediatrician at Pediatric and Medical Associates, PC in New Haven and Cheshire. Dr. Uleski, welcome to where we live. Oh, thank you, Lucy. Thank you very much. Also in studio with me now is Jessica Hollenbach, Research Associate at the Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford and co-director of the Asthma Center at Connecticut Children's. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lucy. I'll turn to uh, the pediatrician first. Tell us about asthma. How common is this this disease, Dr. Uleski? Well, asthma is actually a very common disease, and one of the most common diagnoses that we make um, in an outpatient and inpatient setting. Uh, Most of uh, not most, but a lot of children and adults experience it. Um, so it's a, it's a very um, common diagnosis um, to make. And I was asking the reporter who kind of crunched the data um, from the Department of Public Health earlier about, you know, is this disease more prevalent among children than adults? Can you talk about that? Sure. I, I think that we see more of it with kids based on their size of their airways. So um, as kids, we have smaller airways, they have, especially with um, infants and young children. As we get older, those airways tend to open up a little bit more. However, adults still, it's a higher, high prevalence in adults as well, too. But I think in children, we're more in tune to the wheezing and the noises that might be associated with those smaller airways. And what about triggers? You know, I've heard from people, I don't have asthma, but, um, you know, my husband was diagnosed when he was a child, but then it seemed like he grew out of it. Um, uh, When we had children, they asked if there was, you know, a history of asthma in the family. Um, Then our child then developed something, uh, got RSV, um, and that when he was a baby actually triggered asthma, but then he's grown out of it. Also environmental triggers. Can you kind of explain to us, Dr. Uleski, you know, what triggers asthma? Lots of things <laughs> is, is, is the first answer. Uh, there are multiple different um, triggers for asthma. Most common is, as just as you mentioned, RSV or um, generalized colds. So the most three common things that we see for, for kids to trigger asthma being well, colds and, and viruses being one, um, seasonal allergies and environmental triggers, um, and, then, and then other types being like smoking or smoking in the house. Um, the other um, more common triggers that, that can still occur, things like perfumes or strong smells, pollution, um, um, or any other types of strong incense um, can trigger up asthma. The other change that happens is change of weather, which is when we t- tend to see it right now from a winter to a, fa- uh, winter to a spring time period where it's starting to get really warm or when a summer to a fall where it starts to change in the weather um, where you get to the, either the extreme humidity and then you walk inside to a nice cold air or you go from it's nice and hot in your house and you walk right outside to the freezing cold temperatures. All that can trigger asthma. And then the last being exercise. So a lot of air coming in, a lot of a lot of movement, and a lot of use of your lungs can then, of course, trigger it back up. So there is a lot of different triggers for asthma in these kids. In terms of your second response um, of um, can kids outgrow it, the answer is yes. Um, kids can outgrow it, though we tend to be more cautious with the people who've the kids who've had it from a younger age and move older. Some of them had it when they were three, and all of a sudden now they're 
17 and they're coughing for two weeks. And we're saying, hmm, maybe this is the return of asthma, or maybe you truly didn't outgrow it and that you just, as you were growing bigger and your lungs were getting bigger, you were better able to handle those symptoms. And I think that's why sometimes we see it outgrow when you get towards to an adult phase. Well, thank you, Dr. Yuleski. Uh, now that we understand a little bit more about what asthma is and the triggers, I wanted to talk more about um, treatment and prevention. So I'll turn to Jessica now from CCMC. Um, I know that you were probably listening to the last segment where reporter Jody Mosher-Gill, um, she actually reported a little bit on what's called Easy Breathing, this Easy Breathing program developed at uh, Connecticut Children's. So can you tell us about this program, Jessica? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, so Easy Breathing is an asthma management program Uh, for primary care clinicians and primary pediatricians uh, that translates the national asthma guidelines into a usable format for primary care clinicians. So it really distills down the essence of what the the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program developed into elements that are usable um, for pediatricians, for a busy primary care pediatrician. So it really helps guide them and provide the tools to guide them in diagnosing, identifying asthma, and then a pro- providing appropriate therapy. And so specifically, you're, it's like a honed-down version of how many questions you can ask to get an idea of, of persistent um, symptoms? Yeah, so it, it's a honed-down version of, again, the national guidelines. Um, these guidelines are over 400 pages long, and pediatricians treat over 50 chronic diseases. And so what it does is that is it breaks it down into its most uh, the essence of what we believe is is um, is in diagnosing asthma, um, and it uh, guides clinicians uh, using simple uh, four simple questions that have been tested in the community to recognize and diagnose asthma, and then it also provides questions on how um, on the asthma severity, um, and based on that on that category, we uh, the program then provides on uh, tools that. Uh, help clinicians then provide a severity-appropriate therapy that, again, adhere to the national guidelines. Um, And given all those elements, uh, once the clinician has decided on the asthma severity-appropriate therapy, families are given an an appropriate asthma treatment plan, or as Jody called it, the asthma action plan. And then families take this home so that they know what they can do every day when they're sick in an emergency with their asthma. Dr. Uleski, I'll turn back to you as a pediatrician. How often are you using easy breathing? Frequently. Um, we, at my practice, we've um, used it for since the inception that I've been here, um, and they had actually been using it, I believe, since one of the first practices to join the easy breathing program and help with the study. Um, so we we tend to give it out to kids uh, at well at well child visits um, to say okay let's let's talk about these questions just to make sure that we're hitting the kids that we have with asthma and uh, and then making sure that we're catching all the kids that we need to need to find who might have asthma. Questions like um, the, the the four questions are the biggest questions as as as. Um, as Jessica was mentioning, um, you know, have you been coughing and wheezing in the past 12 months? Um, do illnesses last longer than the typical five to seven days? Do you continue to cough? Do you have any shortness of breath when you're running? Um, are you coughing at nighttime even though you're completely healthy? Those are the big four questions that let us um, narrow down down that, that those community um, questions to get picked those uh patients and and kids that might have it that we didn't previously diagnose. 
And then do you know anything about putting on airs? Uh, I guess this is for adults. Maybe I should turn this back to, to Jessica um, at CCMC. And that's also home visits for people with asthma. So putting that program together with uh, easy breathing correlates with this decrease in, in ER visits and hospitalizations? It's po- it's possible, Lucy. Um, we we've, um, believe that Putting on Airs is a great program, and we advocate for the program um, but through easy breathing. Um, in a statewide manner, and we and we help sort of disseminate and make people aware of it. So uh, we help school nurses uh, let families know that this is available. Uh, and, and and easy breathing itself, um, the the it, it the beauty of it is its simplicity. Um, and what it really does is what helped clinicians focus exclu- exclusively on asthma diagnosis and therapy. Um, it's not a comprehensive, um, uh, all-encompassing asthma program, which is where putting on airs as an add-on can really help uh, for children who are still poorly controlled uh, and they're on the right therapy. And this is where putting on airs can come in and, and provide, you know, a, a home assessment and, and other uh, home remediation um, provisions that easy breathing just can't, just doesn't do. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at asthma trends statewide, and we're hearing about two programs uh, to help uh, children and adults uh, with asthma. If this is something that you struggle with uh, through the years, we want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. You can tweet or find us on Facebook, at Where We Live. And uh, Jessica, uh, you know, we've also heard, again, that these ER visits and hospitalizations have gone down but asthma is still, there's still high rates in cities. Mm-hmm. You're in Hartford at CCMC. So what more can be done to help uh, children, especially those um, that, are, that are affected by asthma more? Yeah, that's a really good point. And something that we at the Asthma Center are really focused on, on, on understanding. Um, we, why do we see so much asthma in Connecticut and why in urban areas? Well, we know that asthma is more common in people of different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds. In Hartford in particular, we have a large uh, Hispanic Puerto Rican population and, and an African-American population, and those are both populations that experience the highest pediatric asthma rates um, in the country. So that could explain it as well. Um, and and asthma is more common overall in New England. Um, and as Dr. Yuleski mentioned, uh, the weather is a, is a strong, could be a strong trigger for some, for some folks and as you know, today we have a, a drastic change in weather, and moisture can really be contributing uh, to the promotion of growth of allergens, and allergens are triggers. So it could be a combination of effects. Um, asthma is also higher in lower socioeconomic status, um, more urban populations as well. Dr. Uleski, uh, the practice that you work for is b- uh, both in New Haven and Cheshire. Uh, New Haven, I believe, has higher rates of hospitalizations due to asthma. You know, as a doctor, what can be done to help um, be the particular population that's, you know, be having to be hospitalized because of, of um, having chronic asthma and emergencies related to that disease? Sure. I, I, the first step, of course, other than identifying who might have asthma, is then the education part and, and teaching families how asthma therapies work, um, why, why they need to use it for their child, how to use inhalers correctly, um, what is a preventative medication, how to use a preventative medication, um, why do they need it, do they need it all the time. And education still falls on the forefront. Even very well-educated families that I see 
occasionally have some trouble following the correct steps for their child's asthma therapy. So I think part of it is not just identifying it, but also education of the family to make sure they, they do the therapies correctly when their child starts developing that cough or when they start to get that illness. And from your experience, Dr. Uleski, I mean, you know, why are people not following the steps? Is it just uh, time consuming? Do they not realize that um, the medicine needs to be consistent? I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. A, a couple things that I think is just the first part that I see a lot is we did this. We did this. I did it this way as an adult when I had asthma. So it's the exact same way that I have to do it for my child. Um, that I did it. And a lot of times that's false. And the other part is um, a lot of new medications are coming out um, that are a little bit different. So the first stand, standalone therapy for treatment of asthma is albuterol. It's an inhaler. Um, it comes out very fast. And a lot of adults put the inhaler straight up to their mouth and then just breathe it right in. Well, for kids, that doesn't work. Um, you need a spacer. You need something to stop the flow of that aerosol coming out super fast. And that's what a spacer does. And a lot of kids, even a lot of teenagers, won't use a spacer because it's not cool looking. It does, it's not, you know, nobody else has it. Why do I have to use it? Well, that's the thing that provides the extra medicine and lets you get that extra medicine in. So seeing a lot of adults will tell me when I give them the spacer, they're like, why does, it, why does my child need to use this? I never use one. I was like, well, you probably should be using one. You probably will get more information and more therapy better with your albuterol if you're using it. So some of it is just an education. Now, on the second aspect of medications, a lot of the companies now are using uh, albuterol that comes in a powder form, which doesn't now need a spacer. So you now have some kids that are using an albuterol with that needs a spacer, and some of them who are a little bit older who don't need it. So which one do you use? Which which one are you are you treating for the for the family? And making sure that of course they don't get confused of which medicines are there. Jessica from CCMC, also co-director of the Asthma Center at Connecticut Children's. You were nodding a lot when the doctor was talking. What are some of the things that you're hearing from parents? Right. So I think to to tag along on what Dr. Uleski was mentioning is, is, is yes, it is confusing. So uh, families have a it, – it's difficult to understand um, the difference between a preventer medicine and, an, and, a, and a rescue or reliever. So albuterol is a rescue reliever. And um, in easy breathing, what we found is that the provision of an asthma treatment plan or an asthma action plan helps to clarify that confusion. It tells families in, in uh, words that, that, they, that they can understand and, and that are actionable what they should be doing every day, which is take their preventer if they have persistent asthma, and then what to do in an emergency or if they're having symptoms, if they're wheezing or if they're coughing, that they know that they can take their reliever or rescue inhaler, their albuterol. Um, and, and it helps to make that uh, make it less confusing for families. Um, the doctor also mentioned different medicines, you know, albuterol, that's one that's common. Uh, but is there ever an issue with the cost of this medicine? Um, so the cost is, is variable. It depends on a lot of things. It depends on the manufacturer. It depends on your insurance company. And, and as far as easy breathing is concerned, what we've done for providers and clinicians is to tell them um, which drugs are, are covered by which insurance companies and uh, which helps uh, clinicians help the families pick and choose which therapy works best for them when they're developing a written asthma treatment plan, which really becomes a, um, a team effort when the pediatrician is writing this treatment plan out and saying, what, what insurance are you, do you have? Um, okay, this, these are the drugs that are covered by your insurance, and here's what I think would work best for you. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about asthma today in the context of of a story from CHIT related to asthma trends around the state. Um, if you have asthma or your child does, or curious about you know what works for you and if you've been able to take advantage of these uh, programs in the state to help with prevention and treatment, 860-275-7266. Again, that number, 860-275-7266. Um, besides the um, occasional visit to the doctor, um, are there other ways that in communities or at schools that can help um, screen children for asthma and make sure that they're getting the proper treatment, Jessica? That's a good question, Lucy. And I really think that as, as, a, as a pediatric asthma researcher that gets to uh, work with pediatricians across the state, I would say that uh, just commu- uh, communicating, if families could communicate with their pediatricians on their child's asthma symptoms, um, and and, t- and ask them questions about what the best therapy is and ask for an asthma treatment plan um, or an asthma action plan and to also bring a copy of that plan to the school nurse because we be- strongly believe that the school nurse um, is a is a key player in, in the patient-centered medical home. And if the school nurse knows, um, can help treat and control the asthma, then everybody's on the same page and speaking the same language. Dr. Richard Uluski is on the phone with us, a pediatrician at Pediatric and Medical Associates in New Haven and Cheshire. Just to piggyback from what you said earlier, Dr. Uluski, a caller, uh, Sarah, said that she has coworkers who leave inhalers in their car don't know the proper way to use them. Correct. <laughs> yep. So, um, uh, again, a, a very common um, thing is that you, you leave them, sometimes people leave them out on the beach or, you know, you take it somewhere, they, they, they get too hot to be used. Um, they they denature, they're expired, um, and, and again, e- even when it comes to uh, adult medicine, so even some of the, the new staff that we get in our office and we tell them they need to use an, uh, a spacer and they start to use it, it's like, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing how much more uh, medicine or how better I feel when I'm having an asthma attack compared to when I just put the inhaler straight up to my mouth and breathe in. So a technique from it is is very important. Um, and teaching kids and parents how to do it correctly is also, of course, very important. So um, to piggyback on a, on a money standpoint, I, we don't usually see a lot of trouble with money when it comes to the rescue medications, so the albuterol. Um, most families, um, it is a generic medication that most families can afford, or if not, most insurances do cover it. Um, when it runs into the more of the preventative medications, that's when we come, to come into the, uh, okay, which one should we use for you? Um, let's pick and choose, um, because there are, of course, different, many different types of preventative and which, which one would be the best for your child based on your budget. I want to take a call now. Liz is calling from West Hartford. Liz, you're on Where We Live. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I have asthma. I've had it my whole life. And I have a three-year-old daughter who has inherited all of my food allergies. And I've been sort of nervous about whether or not she would develop asthma. And one thing that one of your guests said about coughing at night when they otherwise seem perfectly healthy really just hit me because she does that often. She exhibits no other symptoms during the day. She's perfectly happy. I never hear her wheezing. Um, But then at night, I listen to her, you know, with these coughing fits. They don't wake her up, um, and she doesn't seem affected by it at all. But when I've mentioned it to my pediatrician and to her allergist, who's also my allergist, I've sort of been told that there's no way 
to effectively test a three-year-old for asthma um, and that what they would do would be just to start treating her for it. And I'm a little bit, you know, um, nervous about just pumping medicine into her that she may not need. Um, But I was wondering what your thoughts on that situation might be. All right, Liz, thank you for your call. I'll let Dr. Uluski uh, respond. Sure. I, based on our data, I would say that the first is that, that there's a very higher incidence that she could be developing asthma, um, especially when you describe the coughing at night on, on, a, on, on a more daily basis, especially when she's well. Um, I'm, to piggyback on what your pediatrician and the allergist said, um, there is testing that you can do for asthma to prove whether or not they have it. It's called spirometry. Um, kids usually have to be a certain age to be able to do it. They have to take a big, deep breath in. They have to blow out as hard as they can for as long as they can, just like they're blowing out 100 birthday candles. Um, some kids at three could potentially do it, but most kids at three usually have a little bit of, of, of some trouble with it. We do do it in our office, and we tend to do it you know, between four and five is when the first time that we start, start to do that, and that lets us uh, get a a better feel, especially when you're like confused, like do they have it, do they not have it, that might let us see. The other thing that a lot of times that pediatricians will do is is exactly, you know, whether that's for asthma or something else, and I'm going to make a comparison to, to ADHD medications, is that sometimes you need a trial. Sometimes just having a trial with the medications for a few weeks and listening might be helpful. So uh, an example might be, you know, for someone like her, I, would, I might say, okay, let's use albuterol at bedtime um, for two weeks. And then let's keep a diary to see how long, um, to see if she continues to cough throughout the night. Or if she is coughing and wakes up in the middle of the night, tries to try the albuterol in the middle of the night and see if that helps and see if that calms down that cough. Um, if it doesn't, then maybe we start to start thinking of other causes of cough. Um, if it does, then maybe we hit it on the head and maybe she truly does have it. But based on, based on our data, she would be in a higher likely incidence of it based on the coughing at night plus the family history of it. Mm-hmm. And then last is what we call the triad. So having allergies, um, whether that be seasonal food allergies, um, eczema, which is the other part of that triad, and then asthma. So they all kind of run together. So sometimes we can put a higher risk or put patients in a higher risk based on, okay, your child is one, they have eczema, now they're one and a half, they develop some seasonal allergies, we're, this is putting you in a little bit higher risk to have your asthma. So um, it, it, I would put her in a higher risk factor, definitely. And when we talk a lot about spacers, but what about, you know, I know my infant got RSV and we had to get the nebulizer, and that was a little frightening in having to give the medicine to a young, a young baby. I mean, anything that you can tell uh, parents about, you know, if their child, even when they're under one, are, are experiencing a lot of wheezing and coughing and how this medicine um, has more benefits than um, side effects? Yeah, sure. So um, twofold. One is that you run into a little bit of a, of a not controversial but research topic as well, too, whether or not um, nebulizers work just as well as spacers and inhalers. Um, and, in fact, different parts of the state and different hospitals will do different things based on the, um, uh, just the hospital system. So, um, you know, one uses more nebulizers, one tends to move towards spacers more. Um, so there's a lot of research on saying, okay, can you use just inhalers with spacers because we know that there's, uh, there's a, a, a better amount given versus a nebulizer, which we're not as certain how much is actually they're breathing in. 
Um, so a nebulizer is, a, of course, a machine that delivers um, air and um, the medication in an aerosol compact into, into a mask that usually you put over an infant's face. Um, or a young child's face, um, depending on how uh, successful they are. A lot of times we use a nebulizer in the younger kids because they're not as compliant. So they keep wiggling their face side to side. They don't want to sit still. Um, so the nebulizer machine will at least let you hold the mask in front of their face so they can take those breaths in, even if they're screaming, um, and, get the, and get the medication that they need in. Albuterol, of course, um, is a rescue medication. So what does it do? It, the, the idea of that the first step of asthma is your lungs are like muscles. They squeeze tight, what we call bronchoconstriction. So the albuterol in the first part is a bronchodilator and, and relaxes those muscles. So obviously the benefits are I can breathe better, I'm not going to cough as much, I won't have shortness of breath, I might be able to talk in full sentences again. Where the risk, it only usually gets into your lungs. So it's quickly, of course, exhaled back out. The systemic risk is that you, you're, usually most kids can develop a faster heart rate, uh, heart rate, excuse me, or they get a little bit of jitteriness and kind of a little bit excited from it because that's what the medicine wants to do. It wants to open that up and kind of excite you a little bit. So um, those are the major risk factors from it, um, where the benefits, of course, is I can breathe again. Yeah. <laughs> and before we go to break, I just wanted to turn back to Jessica Hollenbach again from CCMC. You know, we're talking about asthma in the context of ER visits and hospitalizations around the state decreasing over the last five years. Easy breathing, again, a program to get people on a, and children on an action plan so that you don't end up in an emergency and at the hospital. Could this be modeled to treat other diseases, Jessica? Absolutely, Lucia. I, I do think it could. Um, we've been successful in working with the pediatric community th across the state in implementing a, a pro this program for, for asthma. There's no reason why uh, we couldn't do the same thing for um, o obesity, uh, for ADHD, ADD, um, but it takes, uh, it takes time to work with the pediatric community to find out what they are capable of doing and to go through the guidelines for each of those diseases and find out what is what is the essence of that disease to help the clinician diagnose, recognize, and treat it appropriately. I want to thank Jessica Hollenbach, Research Associate of the Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford, co-director of the Asthma Center at CCMC. Thanks for your time, Jessica. Thank you, Lucy. And Dr. Richard Ulusky is going to stay with us because uh, after the break, we're going to look towards lead poisoning in Connecticut. It's especially problematic for children birth to age five. We'll find out why coming up. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, it's been 35 years since the discovery of HIV-AIDS. Tomorrow, we look back to see how far we've come in understanding, treating, and destigmatizing HIV-AIDS in America. We'll talk to educators, researchers, and local residents. Has HIV affected your life or the life of someone you care for? You can join the conversation. Again, that's tomorrow on Where We Live. Joining me now in studio is Krista Venziano, program coordinator rather for the Lead Radon and Health Homes Program at the State Department of Public Health. Krista, welcome to where we live. Thank you. It's been two years since residents in Flint, Michigan, learned that their water had massive amounts of lead. Um, in New England, what's the primary source for lead exposure? Well, here in Connecticut, uh, we're very lucky. We protect our source water um, and uh, 
it, it's more reservoirs and some underground uh, water. Uh, we don't pull it from the Connecticut River, uh, so we're very uh, lucky. We have very, very good water here in Connecticut. I believe it's triple A, which is very good. So it's the housing stock that's the problem here? It is the housing stock. Unfortunately, we have uh, older homes which have typically lead paint on them, and uh, that lead paint deteriorates. Uh, children chip it off or they get lead dust on their hands, end up putting their hands in their mouth and become lead poisoned. How big of a problem is it here in Connecticut? Again, you're with the State Department of Public Health, one of their programs. How many children are tested and how, how many of them have been poisoned by lead? Um, in 2014, we've had uh, just about a little over 2,200 children that were lead poisoned with venous levels of five and higher micrograms per deciliter. Um, in 1995, we had, so I'm giving you a comparison, in 95, uh, for levels greater than equal to 10, we had 4,387. So we've come down a lot. In 2014, we had 510 children with greater than equal to 10 blood lead levels. So from 4,300 down to 510, it's, it's a great achievement, but we still have some work to do. Uh, we have a pediatrician on the line, Dr. Richard Ulusky. Again, uh, he works for Pediatric and Medical Associates in New Haven and Cheshire. Dr. Ulusky, when we hear about children being poisoned by lead, what are the effects? That's a great question um, because some of the effects we're still researching and don't know. Um, we do know that it does have some effect on IQ, um, maybe some behavioral issues. Um, the answer is we don't know what level of lead potentially could do some of this stuff. Um, we know on extreme levels when they get really high, um, they can have things um, like um, as, as severe as coma and death and um, um, but you, again, we don't usually see that high. Um, what we usually see is, uh, as Krista was mentioning, uh, more in the greater than 10 range or between the 10 and 5 range. So what side effects do those have and do they have long-term side effects is still the biggest question that we're, that's on our minds. And how often are children at, at the practice you work um, at, how often are they tested for lead? Sure. We, t we, we test them um, twice um, between the ages of nine months and 36 uh, months of age. So we usually test them at a year and two years of age. And then any time afterwards, unless there, if there's any exposures or, or any um, um, renovations or any risk factors that they might have. An example being, as Krista was mentioning, um, renovations or housing. So um, uh, an example would be, uh, I, I live in a house that's 100 plus years old. I, I'm, uh, I have guys that are renovating the house. My children are still living in it. That would, be, that would be the risk factor where we say, okay, we should be testing you for lead right now. I'll turn back to, to Krista. Um, you recently spoke to lawmakers. Um, tell us about, obviously, that there's a screening protocol in place, but, you know, that needs to be strengthened is what you told lawmakers? Uh, yes, we do. We have universal screening here in Connecticut. So as the doctor just told us, uh, children are required to be tested at twice before the age of three. So typically around um, one years old and two years old during their well-child visits. Um, some medical providers or maybe even parents um, are not testing the children. We have a screening rate or children are tested um, 
we have a 97.3% screening rate for children that have one test by the age of three, which is wonderful. I mean, that's great. CDC thought that was wonderful when we reported that to them. But unfortunately, only about 53% of the children that are required to have screening by the age of three, the two tests, uh, receive that second test. And why is that happening? We're not sure. It could be the medical providers not realizing they should have a second test, or it could be the parents saying, well, they were okay at the first test. Do we really need to have a second one? I'll talk to the I'll talk to the pediatrician now, Dr. Uluski. Again, you said your practice, you make a point to test them twice before age three. Is that right? That's, that's correct. And so why, why is the cutoff at three? I thought that the formative years for brain development is from birth to age five. I mean, why do we stop it at, at three? That's a great question. Um, we we um, usually stop at that point because the risk factors for the, the hands in the mouth, the, the amount of stuff that you get and put in your mouth when you're an infant decreases. So an example being you have a one-year-old, a two-year-old, well, everything goes in their mouth. Their hands are all over the ground. They're picking stuff up. They're chewing on windows. They're doing whatever they want to do because that's how they're exploring. Once you get to three years of age, now we're changing in our development style. So now we're developing differently. We start to explore with our hands. We're not putting everything in, or we shouldn't be putting everything in our mouth um, by this aspect. So that's why we see our lead um, poisoning numbers start to drop off a little bit because um, they're not not doing those things anymore um, that was putting everything in. And Krista, what's happening in terms of prevention uh, campaigns? Uh, when we look at the data, it, again, it looks like you know children living in cities um, are often more exposed more to to lead. So, what can be done to to keep that number even lower next year? Well, we have a couple of great media campaigns that we're working on. We have one that targets the black population because they are twice as likely to be lead poisoned than white children and Asian children. Um, And we also have a media campaign targeting the Hispanic population because they're about 1.5 times as likely to be lead poisoned. Uh, So we are trying to focus our efforts um, to reduce that health disparity. So we have a media campaign. We have a vanity website. We have uh, radio ads that have been run. We've had a television ad for the Hispanic population, uh, uh, newspaper ads. And there's also funding that goes out to local health departments so they can tailor prevention efforts to what their community needs, not having somebody dictate to them it should be this, that, or the other thing. It can be something, since they know their community, um, they can you know, decide what they need to do for their people. You said there's funding that goes to target particular communities. With the, the budget crunch happening, is that funding getting less and less? Uh, a little bit, um, but I, I'm I'm thankful for the money that we receive, and I know that our local health departments are thankful for that money, and so they're plugging along, trying to do more with a little less, but we don't complain. We say thank you very much. I'll turn back to Dr. Uluski again, a pediatrician. Um, in terms of when we hear about the more than 2,200 children that have been exposed to lead and are considered poisoned by it, what does that mean for them? Can they uh, be treated and, and be okay in the future? 
Sure. It, it it all depends on the level that we're talking about for poison. So, you know, if if you're greater, um, you still need a certain number before there's any treatment for it. A lot of times it's still just a weeding out and making sure that you're pulled out of the environment that continues to put it in. Um, there are treatments for high levels of lead poisoning, and usually those kids are, are greater than 45 is the number that we're shooting for before they get any type of therapy for it. Um, so anything below that, that number, it's more of, okay, what's going on? Let's get in. Let's remove from remove the anything that's in that area or remove them from that area so they're not continuously getting exposed to it. In terms of long term, um, that's the question. You know, how do you uh, how do you prevent any long term damage? Can you prevent any long term um, uh, damage to the brain or the development to that area? What do you tr- how do you treat them afterwards? So kids who do have higher levels, what I tend to be on the lookout for, and I tell parents to, is be on the lookout for school performance, academic performance, learning disabilities, um, and ADHD. Um, we all think that just a, we're thinking that a little bit of lead at this point can have an effect on that developing brain. Now, they might have developed those anyways, so it's hard to say that those two are truly linked, but we do have a lot of data that shows that the kids who had much higher levels of lead developed more of those problems than the kids who didn't. We have just under a minute. I'll go back to Krista Krista Venziano again from the Department of Public Health. For people who live in older homes, what are some tips to prevent, you know, your children, your family, your animals from being poisoned by lead? Right. Yes. Some of the things that parents can do is take a look around their home. Make sure if there's chipping, peeling paint, you keep the child away from it. Make sure if you can clean up the lead dust and the lead paint chips using wet cleaning practices, not just wiping it up with a dust cloth. Um, keep your child out of the dirt that surrounds the drip line of your home because if it came off the side of the house, it's going to sit in the soil. Um, wash your child's hands before they eat and drink. Wash their toys and um, maybe take your shoes off before you come to the house so in case you have it on your shoes, you don't track it through the home. I want to thank Krista Venziano, Program Coordinator for the Lead Radon and Health Homes Program at the State Department of Public Health. Also, Dr. Richard Uluski, Pediatrician at Pediatric and Medical Associates in New Haven and Cheshire. We'll have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening today.